Welcome to PD Heart, Pediatric Cardiology Today. My name is Dr. Robert Pass, and I am the host of this program. Welcome to our 57th episode of the podcast. Today, I have a wonderful announcement to make, which is that I've changed my institution. I am now professor of pediatrics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. And today, on March 1st, 2019, I'm assuming the position as the Chief of Pediatric Cardiology at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. I'm also the co-director of the Pediatric Heart Center with Dr. Peter Pastusko, who's the Chief of Pediatric Cardiovascular Surgery at Sinai. I'm very excited to have the opportunity to work with the wonderful experts in cardiovascular medicine at Mount Sinai. This is a wonderful opportunity for me, and I'm very excited by this new position. Before I go any further, I want to thank all of my wonderful colleagues at Monte your Medical Center, where I have worked for over 11 years. Most importantly, I want to give a shout out to Dr. Daphne Sue, who, as you know, is the Chief of Pediatric Cardiology at Montefiore. I want to thank Philip Ozawa and Steve Safia for the wonderful opportunity that they have given me for the last 11 years. And I also want to make a quick shout out to Ms. Lynn Napo, who is the Nurse Coordinator of the Pediatric EP Program at Montefiore and is one of my dearest friends. It's been such a wonderful time we've had together the last 11 years, really the last 20 plus years. I'm very lucky to count you amongst my dearest friends. And so, dear listener, while you're listening to this podcast, I am figuring out things like where is my office? Where is the bathroom? Who do I go to for what? And can somebody please show me where the best place is to get a sandwich at lunchtime? In truth, you're probably listening to this at the time that I'm giving my first lecture at Mount Sinai. As many of you know, I've been giving pediatric electrophysiology lectures on a weekly or bi-weekly basis for the last 21 years, and I thought there'd be no time like the present to start that process. And so the cardiology fellows at Mount Sinai are now listening to me lecture on something related to pediatric cardiovascular electrophysiology, but we're not going to be discussing that topic this week on the podcast. Instead, we're going to a different area entirely, specifically the area of cardiomyopathy and cardiac transplantation. And we'll be reviewing a recent work from the Pediatric Cardiomyopathy Registry Investigators. The title of the work is Survival Without Cardiac Transplantation Among Children with Dilated Cardiomyopathy. The first author of this work is Rocky Singh, and the senior author is Steve Lipschultz. And again, this is from the Pediatric Cardiomyopathy Registry Investigators. When we're done reviewing this paper, Dr. Rocky Singh, who's the director of the Cardiac Transplantation Program at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego, California, has graciously agreed to speak with us about this important work. And thus, let's move straight on to the article, and when we're done, we'll speak with Dr. Singh. The work starts with some comments about dilated cardiomyopathy, explaining that the definition of dilated cardiomyopathy is LV dilation with systolic dysfunction, and the authors comment on the fact that 40% of children with this diagnosis will either die or have a heart transplant within two years of diagnosis. Though some children will experience normalization of LV size and function, the percentage of children with this sort of progression of improvement has not really changed in that period. But advanced therapies, such as ventricular assist devices, have markedly improved and are used increasingly to help patients with advanced heart failure. With this as a background, the authors sought to determine if rates of heart transplantation and death had changed over time in children with this diagnosis who were enrolled in the Pediatric Cardiomyopathy Registry, or the so-called PCMR, which has collected demographic and clinical data on pediatric cardiomyopathy patients since 1990. 
and the authors sought to identify baseline clinical characteristics that were associated with death by assessing transplant-free survival in two separate decades to determine if management of these patients has changed substantially since 1990. This was a retrospective study assessing patients in the PCMR database. From 1990 to 2011, roughly 3,500 children under 18 years of age with various types of cardiomyopathies were enrolled in 98 pediatric cardiomyopathy centers in the U.S. and Canada. The data in the PCMR database as of January 2014 were analyzed. Only children with pure dilated cardiomyopathy, meaning no other form of mixed cardiomyopathy, such as those with hypertrophic or non-compaction, for example, were included. To determine if changes over time occurred, children with dilated cardiomyopathy were divided into two time periods or cohorts those from the early cohort of 1990 to 1999, and the late cohort from 2000 to 2009. Many demographic, echo, and other data were collected, as well as the medical therapies that were used by the various patients. And on to the results. There were 1,199 children diagnosed with dilated cardiomyopathy in the cohort of the early 1990 to 1999 period, and 754 in the late or 2000 to 2009 period. The authors performed a competing risk analysis, which I'll remind the audience is a special type of survival analysis that aims to correctly estimate the marginal probability of an event when there are multiple competing events, and it is supposed to be a more robust statistical method to assess the effect of something when there are multiple causes for an event. And the authors found in this study that children with dilated cardiomyopathy in the late cohort survived longer despite stable rates of heart transplantation in both eras and showed a 33% reduction in relative risk in this competing events analysis in cumulative incidence of death at three years after diagnosis in the more recent cohort. No differences in baseline characteristics between cohorts could explain the difference in survival. In a multivariable model, the diagnosis of dilated cardiomyopathy in the early cohort was an independent predictor of death. When comparing the two groups, it's important to note that the later cohort had an increased number of non-whites and Hispanic patients, more myocarditis, and less neuromuscular disease. But none of these factors, again, had an impact on outcomes observed of lower mortality in the later cohort. In other words, in this multivariable analysis, being in the early cohort was a predictor of death, independent of anything else. Another competing risk analysis was performed looking at the four most common forms of dilated cardiomyopathy, specifically idiopathic, myocarditis, neuromuscular, and familial, and there were no statistically significant differences in the death rate by cohort. Interestingly, though, when putting them all together, the cumulative incidence of death was greater in the early era, and so it's possible that the authors did not have enough patience to demonstrate differences in these subtypes of dilated cardiomyopathy. The authors did note an improved rate of echo normalization in the neuromuscular group in the late cohort, and posit that this may be explained by improvements in medical management of these patients, as well as increased use of steroids and ACE inhibitors, but they don't actually have the data to know if that is in fact true. Interestingly, when looking at the group as a whole, however, the incidence of echo normalization at three years was similar in both cohorts or time periods. Roughly 28% had normalization. When reviewing factors associated with death, 
Children with neuromuscular dilated cardiomyopathy were over three times more likely to die than were children with idiopathic dilated cardiomyopathy. And the authors posit later in the work that this may be due to other organ systems being involved, such as the respiratory system and the effects of neuromuscular disease on skeletal muscle problems. In contrast, myocarditis patients were much less likely to die in both eras. Worse LV systolic function at diagnosis and advanced heart failure symptoms at diagnosis were both, understandably, associated independently with death in this study. In their discussion, the authors again comment on the poor prognosis of children with dilated cardiomyopathy with one half dying or needing a heart transplant within five years of diagnosis. They state that, quote, improved survival in these children has been primarily attributed to heart transplantation. And although transplantation has remained the preferred treatment for end-stage heart failure, children listed for heart transplantation have some of the highest waitlist mortality amongst solid organ transplantation. And so the survival advantage associated with transplantation is limited by donor availability. The authors then reiterate the improved survival in the later cohort at three years and how no differences in baseline characteristics between the cohorts could explain the differences in survival. Dr. Singh and colleagues posit that improved transplant-free survival may be potentially due to multiple factors, including increased use of VADs, with some children actually having recovery of LV function so that they no longer need transplantation, changes in medical management with more aggressive and early use of beta blockers and ACE inhibitors, improvements in recognition and management of heart failure by the heart failure teams, and the increased reliance on multidisciplinary heart failure care for these children, which may improve outcomes. In regards to limitations of this work, the authors speak of the absence of data on how patients were managed in regards to specifics of clinical care, and state that knowing the use and duration of inotropes or mechanical ventilation or the use of mechanical support would have been helpful in better ferreting out the improved outcomes seen in this study. There are missing data on things like mitral regurgitation or tricuspid regurgitation on echo, which might have also had an important outcome impact. And finally, again, data on the use of different drugs that are now known to improve outcomes in heart failure in adults were not collected. And so they conclude that in this large multi-center registry study, 754 children with dilated cardiomyopathy diagnosed between 2000 and 2009 survived longer than did the 1,199 children diagnosed between 1990 and 1999. This improvement appears to be related to treatment modalities other than heart transplantation, the rates of which were the same in both cohorts. Even when controlling for the degree of LV systolic dysfunction, the cause of dilated cardiomyopathy, and the presence of heart failure symptoms at diagnosis, children with dilated cardiomyopathy in the early cohort were 40% more likely to die than were children in the late cohort. Further investigations into the changing management of dilated cardiomyopathy children, including the use of newer ventricular assist devices and medical therapy, are warranted to better elucidate this improvement in transplant-free survival. Well, as I read this, I thought to myself, phew, how good to know that things are improving for our patients with dilated cardiomyopathy over time. Wow, that's a relief. And so the authors are to be congratulated on demonstrating, perhaps for the first time in such a large study, that this is in fact true. Surprisingly, prior to this, we did not actually know that this was in fact the case with such certainty as this very large study provides. It is for me and the authors, however, somewhat disappointing that we don't actually know why this is. All we can say from this work 
is that it ain't because we're transplanting patients more frequently. What factor amongst the many that we have for our dilated cardiomyopathy patients is the reason? Is it because we're using ACE inhibitors or beta blockers, both of which have been clearly shown to improve outcomes in the adult heart failure patient more consistently? Is it instead the use of mechanical devices that are so much more reliable and readily available today than in the 1990s? Another question that comes to mind is why were there so many more patients in the earlier era? Usually, in my experience, as time passes, more people submit data to registries of this nature. Thus, it's somewhat odd that there are fewer patients in era two versus the first era. Is it possible that with improvements in echo and diagnosis in general that the authors were more able to rule out cases of non-pure dilated cardiomyopathy in the second era versus the prior era? For example, I never even heard of the term non-compaction cardiomyopathy in 1994 when I was a fellow in cardiology. Thus, is it possible that patients included in subset 1, the earlier era, died more frequently because the patients had worser forms of what we would now view as a non-pure form of dilated cardiomyopathy, and they were included unwittingly by the registry participants because we didn't even know about some of these diagnoses that are so commonly diagnosed today? These are amongst the questions I think we should ask of Dr. Singh, and so let's move straight on to our discussion with Professor Rakesh Singh. Joining us now to discuss this important work is Dr. Rakesh Singh. Rocky is the medical director of the Pediatric Heart Failure and Transplantation Program at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego, California, where he is Associate Clinical Professor of Pediatrics at UC San Diego. Rocky received his bachelor's degree with distinction from Cornell University and went on to attend medical school at Duke University. Following this, he completed a combined med-peds residency at Yale University, followed by Pediatric Cardiology Fellowship and Heart Failure and Transplantation Fellowship, both at Columbia University. He also holds a Master's of Science degree in Biostatistics from Columbia. Rocky is an active member of the Multicenter Pediatric Heart Transplant Study Research Group, and it is a great honor to have him join us this week to discuss his paper. Welcome, Rocky, to the podcast. We're here now with Rocky Singh. Rocky, thank you so much for joining us this week on the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you so much. Uh, Rocky, your study didn't really address the causes for improved survival in the more modern era, although you talk about it in your discussion and offer a number of possible explanations. I was wondering if you might share with the audience your own opinion regarding what factors you feel amongst the many different changes in care, medical changes, devices, etc., that based on your experience maybe best explain the marked difference in survival that you described in your work. Yeah, I think there's probably multiple factors that contributed to the improved uh, transplant-free survival in the more modern era. One, uh, increasing use of early mechanical circulatory support, including ventricular assist devices, may have contributed to these improved outcomes. You know, while it's true the majority of children with dilated cardiomyopathy who receive mechanical circulatory support are usually waitlisted for transplantation, yes. there has been, a, has been a recent move towards using circulatory support as a bridge to recovery, especially in our older adolescent children, um, given the improved risk profiles of the newer continuous flow VADs. So thus, you know, some centers are not listing these patients right away for transplant and looking for signs of recovery in the first few months after diagnosis. So that's one possible factor uh, that could explain this improved transplant-free survival in the recent era. Mm. Second, you know, I think the improved survival uh, may be due to the increasing use of, uh, you know, adult-based heart failure therapies associated with cardiac remodeling. 
you know, things like the beta blockers, this carvedilol, ACE inhibitors, aldosterone antagonists. You know, while they've been used for the last couple of decades, most studies have shown that most centers are using them earlier and more often mm. uh, in these dilated cardiomyopathy patients. And so even our asymptomatic patients, these are being started more recently at a higher doses, and that may explain uh, their preservation of function and their need uh, or their lack their need of, to go to transplantation. I see. I think third, uh, maybe the early diagnosis in some of these patients in the more recent era can explain their uh, improved survival, uh, along with sort of the enhancement in our ICU level care uh, in the more recent decade. But I think probably uh, the most important factor that I can think of looking at you know our our own current practices is probably the use of multidisciplinary coordination of care um, that probably has led to the incremental improvement of the outcomes in pediatric dilated cardiomyopathy patients. You know, most pediatric cardiac centers have developed, you know, a protocolized team approach to heart failure. You know, more and more of these centers um, include a heart failure specialist, a nutritionist, a pharmacist, a social worker, a home health care team, and so forth and sort of modeled off the adult heart failure practice. Uh, And it has been seen in the adult world that this actually decreases mortality and readmission rates. So I think that, you know, we've adopted this along with becoming more collaborative. You know, I think that pediatric heart failure is a rare disease uh, and it's difficult for individual centers to really do their own research and QI projects. So for example, there's something called the Action Group, which is Advanced Cardiac Therapies Improving Outcomes Network, or ACTION. Yes. That includes clinicians, researchers, patients, and parents from multiple medical institutions. And, you know, I recently uh, joined this group, and it's very fascinating that they're uniting sort of these various uh, shareholders to improve outcomes by sharing data being transparent, improving education, and standardizing practices. And so, you know, they're filling the void uh, with these rare diseases and trying to share what uh, is being learned at separate institutions. And, you know, Drs. Angie Lortz from Cincinnati and uh, David Rosenthal from Stanford are currently leading that practice. So I think it's a combination of multiple things that may explain uh, this improved transplant-free survival in the more recent era. Well, I guess like everything else, multidisciplinary work is seems like it's very critical, particularly in your uh, business there. Also seems like early identification, you seem to feel, is very important as well uh, of these things. Why do you think it is that we're identifying these earlier? Do you think we just know more about these diseases and signs and symptoms than we did in the past? I think it's probably one of two things. I think one is there's probably improved screening of patients, you know, whether it's through screening EKGs, family history, things like that, and echocardiograms that we're picking up patients who may have a subtle form of dilated cardiomyopathy. And so that, you know, obviously causes sort of a lead bias in that we're picking up these patients before they're presenting with severe disease. I think that's one possibility. Um, I think it's, it could also be related to just, you know, um, improved education of the medical professionals that, you know, even though this is a rare disease for patients that are presenting to the ER or urgent care with repeated abdominal symptoms or respiratory symptoms, that they're actually getting x-ray and getting screened appropriately for dilated cardiomyopathy. Um, but 
you know, that that's just my guess at this point. I don't think we have good data supporting it for sure. Sure. Well, Rocky, I was wondering if there were any surprises to you and your co-investigators when you sort of got figured out all the findings from this very large study. Anything surprise you amongst the uh, major findings? Well, you know, to, to give you a bit of a bit of background and sort of how we came across this research hypothesis and this study in particular, you know, up until up until the study was published, you know, it was generally believed that the only factor that has improved survival in pediatric dilated cardiomyopathy patients over the last 30 years was the availability and use of heart transplantation. You know, all the prior studies that have been done showed no improvement in transplant-free outcomes. So, for example, you know, the Carvedilol study by Dr. Bob Shaddy showed no improvement in heart failure outcomes. There was a single-center study across two decades by Dr. Paul Cantor showing changing medical therapy did not improve transplant-free survival. So, you know, I was on a, a, a conference call with other members of the Pediatric Cardiomyopathy Registry back in 2014. And we were discussing how, you know, prior reports from the PCMR looking at pediatric dilated cardiomyopathy patients have given us a lot of understanding of their outcomes, whether they recover function, what are the risk factors for sudden death, and how they do before and after transplant. But we never really looked at whether what we're doing beyond transplant has really made a difference. And so we felt that, you know, we had this powerful PCMR database, which is the largest registry of pediatric uh, dilated cardiomyopathy patients. And so I distinctly remember uh, Dr. Charlie Cantor from St. Louis suggesting that one of us should look at this. And it got really quiet, and no one responded. <laughs> and then he suggested that I, being by far the most junior person on that phone call, take the lead on answering that question. And it was a wonderful educational experience. Wow, that's a wonderful, uh, wonderful description. Thank you, Rocky. That was pretty cool. <laughs> we talked a, a bit ago about how we, it's hard to tease out precisely why it is that the patients are doing so much better in this more modern era. I was wondering if the registry today is capturing more details like medical and device management. You mentioned in the discussion of this paper that you really couldn't draw large conclusions because you didn't have all of those data. Are you now recording more uh, precise information regarding the use of devices and what the particular medical therapies are on these patients? So the PCMR registry is actually no longer enrolling patients. You know, there were there were known study limitations of the PCMR, including that it didn't collect information on things like ionotropic support, mechanical ventilation, the use of uh, circulatory support like BADS and medications. There's other registries out there that are designed to help look at the questions that weren't answered by this paper. Um, the PHTS, um, I know you're, you're familiar with because Dr. Daphne Sue from Montefiore was on your prior podcast, yes. which is the Pediatric Heart Transplant Study uh, Group. Uh, looks at patients who are listed for transplants since the early 1990s. Uh, but again, that doesn't capture dilated cardiomyopathy patients that uh, you know may not be sick enough to be listed for transplant. There are some newer registries, uh, such as EMAX, um, which is run through uh, UAB. I know you've had Dr. Scott Auerbach from Colorado on one of your prior podcasts talking about PDMAX, which looks at ventricular devices implanted in pediatric patients. Yes. So that's, that is capturing a lot of information that has been lacking in the PCMR registry, specifically the use of VADs in dilated cardiomyopathy patients. And some interesting data has come out looking at how well these patients are doing. 
finally, there's a, there's another new registry called the International Pediatric Heart Failure Registry that was created in 2015 by Dr. Ann Dipshan in Toronto to capture pediatric heart failure patients hospitalized. And so this was really a, a critical registry uh, that we don't have uh, current data on that really tries to capture all patients at time of admission. Hmm. So uh, that first registry report came out last year um, unfortunately, it's currently on hold uh, pending further funding of the registry, but that, I think, has the potential of capturing the most information on our patients, uh, both by linking it to PHTS, PDMAX, uh, and the heart failure registry. I see. Wow, lots of different registries. It's so exciting to hear all this collaborative research between all these big groups. And I have to admit to you, I'm shocked at how many of these famous transplant people I know. It seems you would think I know. I should know a lot more transplant than I do for all my friends. We didn't even mention Jackie Labore, another big, big figure here. Uh, well, um, you know, Rocky, as we're coming down to the end of this interview, for those in the audience, it's kind of late, both in New York and San Diego, and I really appreciate your getting on tonight, Rocky. What's next in your research on this topic? Where Where is Rocky Singh focusing his energies now in the research world? Well, I think, you know, I have a, an interest in these multi-center registries. Again, because you're dealing with a rare disease, I think you could have the most powerful impact on your management of these patients with the collaborative effort. You know, for example, you know, as being part of the PHTS, we, we've had a couple of working groups starting to standardize care across many institutions to help us move forward with clinical trials. Yes. The, the teammate trial that's looking at the use of Everolimus uh, being run by doctors Kevin Daly at Boston and Chris Almond at Stanford is one of the first prospective clinical trials in, in transplantation. Uh, so that's exciting. So similarly, in terms of, you know, dilated cardiomyopathy, you know, I'm part of the Pediatric Heart Failure Workforce, which is a sort of an organization looking to standardize uh, practice among heart failure specialists so that we can take the next step and do clinical trials. Um, and so, you know, we, for example, recently uh, submitted a survey to all the members in the workforce, which is most heart failure specialists uh, across the world, to just get a sense of what people are doing. You know, to get a sense of how do we diagnose these patients, how do we manage them, how do we follow them, just so that we can all speak the same language when it comes time to write a protocol for a clinical trial. You know, we'd have enough clinical equipoise to uh, recruit uh, different organizations to uh, enroll their patients to see if we can answer these questions. I see. Well, that makes a lot of sense. You know, this is such a wonderful discussion, and it dovetails so nicely with what Dr. Sue mentioned on her podcast a couple of months ago about how you are all moving away from the registry and more towards prospective trials for the first time. Very, very exciting work. Thank you. Yeah, well, Rocky, I can't thank you enough for coming on. This was really quite interesting, and uh, I wish you the best of luck with your future research on this topic. And again, thank you so much for taking a few moments out of your busy day to speak with us today on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, and congratulations again on your podcast. It's really a, a great endeavor. That's very kind of you. Thanks a lot, Rocky. What a great opportunity to speak with one of the new leaders in the field of cardiomyopathy, heart failure, and transplantation. I remember well when Rocky was a first and second year cardiology fellow at Columbia. How wonderful to hear how he is involved in such vital research in this field. And how nice that he is doing exactly what Dr. Daphne Sue told us back in Podcast 32. 
specifically using registry data to inform novel prospective trials for the first time. And Rocky spoke to us about just a few of the exciting such trials and registries that are ongoing at this time. I think we all learned a lot from his analysis of why he believes that patients with dilated cardiomyopathy are doing better in the modern current era, and he spoke about the critical nature of multidisciplinary care and the role it plays in the care of the dilated cardiomyopathy patient. I would certainly say that if there is a theme in this podcast regarding how patients do well with complex problems, it's pretty clear that multidisciplinary approaches are the panacea because they incorporate the expertise of so many specialists in the care of our patients. I found Dr. Singh's explanation regarding the rationale and genesis for this study to be of great interest, and he explained to us how the investigators themselves were frustrated by prior studies that failed to show improvements in outcomes with things such as carvedilol, for example, and yet the heart failure experts knew that things were in fact getting better and so wished to study this, hence the nidus for this important work that we reviewed this week. I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Dr. Rocky Singh, and I look forward to our next podcast on this important patient group, the cardiomyopathic patient group, which is a group of patients for whom it can truly be stated that it takes a village to properly care for. To conclude our 57th episode of the podcast, we'll hear my favorite opera singer, Kathleen Battle, singing an aria from an opera for which she was justly famous. The opera is entitled Semele from the great composer George Friedrich Handel, and the aria we'll be hearing is Where You Walk. Miss Battle recorded this live in 1986, and this was around the same time that she had a magnificent great success first at Carnegie Hall, and then eventually at the Metropolitan Opera in this role in this particular opera. Thank you so much for joining me this week for our 57th episode of the podcast, and thanks once again to Rocky Singh for his wonderful contribution. I look forward to seeing everybody next week for episode 58. Oh, <laughs>